0: I wanted to spend some time in the month of December just orienting our hearts around the incarnation. We're going to specifically do that from the Gospel of Luke Christmas story that you may know. We're not going to go, of course, this isn't a starting a Gospel of Luke story, um, like sermon. My buddy's in like his third year of the Gospel of Luke, I said, so I, I, we're not doing that. But Luke 1 and 2, we're going to look at Christmas through the eyes of several characters as we head into Uh, Christmas Eve. Um, And so we'll just do Luke 1 and 2. We'll be through most of Luke 1 and 2 toward the beginning until the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. And the reason for this is to give our minds and hearts some transition. Of course, we've been as a church praying and seeking the Lord on um, the future potential merger in partnership with Creek's End. Uh, also, just as a note, uh, those affirmations are due, final affirmations or non-affirmations are due today. So we can tally it and see uh, where we land. And I'll or somebody email you out even this afternoon and say where we are with it. But in the in-between, wanted to look at the Gospel of Luke. Everybody has a favorite Christmas song. I don't, you know, even if you're not a Christian, <clears throat> you have one. It could be rocking Around the Christmas Tree. It doesn't matter. Uh, everybody around here has a favorite Christmas movie. Um, and tell me why it's Elf. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Christmas songs and Christmas movies and everything else, it's all there. And one of the songs that we sing, <clears throat> you may know the words. You know, it says, let every heart prepare him room. And it's interesting when I think of the idea of preparation because, yes, hearts prepare room <clears throat> for the Lord. And at the same time, it is actually the Lord who is preparing hearts. And I've been thinking about that transition in, in even my own thinking to go, what is God doing? And how is God preparing people? And how is God preparing situations? And how is God preparing in the arrival of the Messiah in first century Israel? How is he preparing people For the arrival of the Messiah. And it is so beautiful to see some ways God works. All of these people are going to be prepared people. As we think about the pronouncement of the birth of John the Baptist. Which is the first pronounced birth in the Gospel of Luke. We think about the pronouncement to Mary. We think about the pronouncement to the shepherds. We think about the interaction with Elizabeth, and all that God does in those spaces. He is preparing people as his plan of salvation is marching forth. And it is beautiful to see, and I hope we can see it together over the coming weeks, the way God is preparing on the grand stage individual hearts for the work of the Messiah. It seems like like, like it's so beautiful to be able to see that, that God is using people with names and families and faith to bring about the story that has existed before the foundation of the earth, the commitment and foreordained plan to bring salvation to the world through God the Son, Jesus Christ. And in today's passage, we get to see just that, that God makes way for the Messiah, prepares for the Messiah by preparing a man the man is first, not, we're not talking about Joseph yet, we're actually talking about Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. That's how Luke begins us in chapter 5. We'll go through this um, in really three movements, but it's the same movement with three different ways of talking about it. We'll talk about it first with just what's going on in the text, then we'll go to that idea of like, what is God? Doing here, what does this mean for us? So we'll move through it kind of with those umbrellas as we do. And the first thing that we see is that God does <clears throat> prepare the way for the Messiah by preparing a faithful family Zechariah and Elizabeth. Luke chapter 1. The whole passage is really 5 through 25 that we will be in today, but we're going to start right there in verse 5 because Luke introduces us in 5, 6, and 7 to this family. And the family is incredibly faithful, and the family has a problem. You'll see this right away. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. We see two people, a husband and wife, who are upright, righteous, but barren. In the Old Testament in particular, and into the New Testament era, barrenness is a negative thing. It still is in our culture. Families have children, and when you can't have children, it often is very heart-wrenching for many. If infertility is a part of your story, then you understand that experience of just trying to have children and not being able to have children. And while your friends have children and you wonder what's going on, and this is right there where we get to see two things. We get to see that it's not a punishment for their behavior. They're quite righteous. They're blameless. But yet still, no child. What we see in this family is that they are... Priestly, both Zechariah is a priest, and Elizabeth is from the daughters of Aaron. So they have, their families have had a role in the worshiping life of Israel from the beginning. They have those types of connections. The priests were divided up into 24 And each division would have two weeks of service in a given year. One week, you'd go home, and then you'd have another week. That's what we get into as we begin to see the birth pronouncement of the angel of the Lord to Zechariah. He's serving one of his two weeks of the year, selected for the one time he'd be able to serve in a unique way. Because there were so many priests to serve, you could not always serve in the same way. Only one time, if the lot fell on you, were you going to be able to offer incense in the way that Zechariah is offering incense? So you get, he gets one opportunity. The lot falls on him. That's it. He has no more opportunities. His name's out of the bucket because there are thousands of people who have priestly responsibilities, and there's offerings in the morning and in the evening, and so it can't be the same guy every time. Look at how God prepares Zechariah for even this moment. Luke 1.8 Now while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, So Zechariah is prepared to be in a unique place at a unique time that he would only be able to be at at one point in time while others are praying. God provides for him a moment where he would be alone and an angel of the Lord is going to show up and speak to Zechariah about the salvation while others are outside praying. And God promises a son at this time. Verse 11 There appeared to him an angel of the Lord, we don't know the name yet, but we will, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him, a common response to an angelic encounter. But the angel of the Lord said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call him John. Now, just wait right there. Look at verse 13 again. The angel of the Lord shows up, and something happens. The angel says, Your prayer has been answered. If you go read any commentary, people are trying to find out what prayer and when. Because people were praying outside, people were praying, he would have been praying at the altar of incense. Would he likely have been praying for a son at the altar of incense? Maybe. Maybe. But he had a priestly duty at the time on behalf of the nation. It seems as if in this unique moment. I say seems because I can't be for sure in any of these answers. That God shows up at the time, the angel of the Lord shows up at the time the angel of the Lord needed to show up. To say, God has heard you. We've heard your longings. We've heard your desire for a child. And God is going to answer your prayer. It wasn't even about the altar of incense or the worship or the sacrificing that was going on in the moment. But it was a personal communication with Zechariah about what was going to happen in his life that God heard. This is such a good reminder for me because God hears. He does hear. And for those of us who have been praying maybe for some things for weeks, months, or years... In his time and in his way, he will answer. The answer is not always a yes. The answer might be a no. I've gotten no's at times that have been incredibly gracious from the Lord. But speaking of grace, this is what's really cool about the name John here. It means God is gracious. God has heard your prayers and you are going to have a child and you shall call his name John Which means God is gracious. And isn't that true? In all that is going on, even here in this moment, in Luke chapter 1, God is being gracious at the individual level by discussing with Zechariah how he is going to use a birth to bring something about. But then also at the meta level, he is preparing the way for the Messiah. And through John the Baptist's ministry, he is the forerunner for the ministry of the Messiah. God is gracious even in this moment to Zechariah and his family but to you and to me because of the work that is going on throughout. It's interesting and you get to this at the end of chapter 1. It's confusing that you would call him John because there's no family name of John. You keep the names in the family. Zechariah says there's, there's nobody by that name but that is what is pronounced you will call him john meaning god is gracious he's heard and he listens and then there begins to be a bit of a job description for the forerunner now this is just crazy to me because we 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 talk about christmas time but this is not christmas time this announcement this is months before the birth of the messiah god is preparing a family months before the birth of the messiah to have a forerunner for the Messiah at a, at a what seems to be random time of the assigned service and the lot fallen upon time where Zechariah is going to be in the room where it happened. All of these moments are divinely ordained. Divinely ordained. It seems to us that we get to have the, uh, what would that be, like the, the third-person omniscient view, but not the omniscient in the Lord's sense, but like we, we recognize there's more going on here than, than Zechariah in the moment knows, that Zechariah is learning things about what God's going to do in his life, that you and I, because of our fuller knowledge of the Gospel of Luke and our faith in the Messiah, we see what God is working out, but it took what Zechariah might have thought, I'm just going to work this week, honey, going to Jerusalem to offer the service, and then when the lot falls on him, he's like, okay, well, here's my moment. And he goes and has his moment, and it's an honor to do. And then that lot's done, and he just gets to continue to serve in the way that he's going to serve. And he'll come back, and however long his priestly unit serves again for their next week. This is always going on. Thousands of people in and out of Jerusalem offering worship and sacrifice and prayers week after week, cycling through the new priestly unit's bringing them in, and then they'd retire out, and the younger ones would go. Like, this was the constant way that they were participating in worship, and it just seems so normal. And yet God is working in the normal. He's working right there in just Zechariah doing what Zechariah was supposed to do and assigned by God to do. So often we even look at, like, for us, gathering in worship on Sundays is just routine. But God meets us in the routine. He meets us in the gathering, and he meets us in his word, and he meets us with other brothers and sisters, and we don't even realize what God is orchestrating when we gather because we couldn't have mapped it out. So yes, this is a birth announcement unlike any other. Zechariah wasn't expecting it. The angel is there. Angels don't show up that often in the... Old or New Testaments to talk about a birth, it really does only ha- happen a handful of times, like fewer than ten times, I believe. Uh, it talks about like an angel shows up to say, "Hey, something's happening," and he begins to talk about what will the ministry of this child look like. There's going to be great joy for the family and joy for the nation. Verses fourteen and fifteen, you will have joy and gladness. Well, you're going to have a kid. And many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great for the Lord. John is bringing joy to his family and joy to others. And if you know the ministry of John the Baptist, you realize what he brings. He does bring conviction, but so many are turning to the Lord as he prepares the way for the Messiah. He is separate from the beginning. This is another part of his resume, He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. At times in the Old Testament, particularly, those types of Nazarite vows or even partial vows for something were about seriousness before the Lord. The task before John is too important to imbibe. He is going to participate fully and wholeheartedly for the Lord. And so he will be specifically engaged in ministry. And then you begin to see an aspect of his ministry that harkens back to the spirit and power of Elijah. Verse 16. And he, this is again is John, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, he will go before him, being he, John, will go before him, the Lord, in the spirit and power of Elijah. This would be the Old Testament prophet Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now there's a lot there in verse seventeen. So verse 16, I think we can we can comprehend. Many are going to turn to the Lord their God. Well, if you're familiar with the ministry of John the Baptist, that is what you see. You see him crying out in the wilderness for people to turn and to repent. And if they didn't repent, he'd challenge them. He would challenge the religious leadership in their behavior and in their attitudes and in their actions, calling them a, a brood of vipers. When I was in high school, we forgot the of, and we just called everybody brood vipers. You brood vipers. I didn't even know what that, doesn't mean anything. Felt cool, though. So John had this ministry of repentance, and we saw that because people were preparing and finding refreshing and rejoicing in the baptism for remission of sins, not for their salvation, but in preparation for Jesus, who was coming on the heels of John's ministry. And then there is this language about Elijah and turning the hearts of fathers to their children and disobedient to the wisdom of the Lord. And we, we see two things here. You again see a horizontal restoration of right relationships. Fathers and children. Now at times in the Old Testament, the fathers, that generation, was, would have been seen, for example, in the wilderness wanderings as the disobedient generation. And the children were the ones who would inherit the land. So there's that maybe theme of fathers and children... But specifically, though, you follow the parallel thought, disobedient to the wisdom of the just, those who are disobedient, turning to the Lord. And we see those horizontal and vertical aspects of relationships. When we did Ephesians 2, we saw this very thing, that the work of the Lord changes us here because it changes us here. And so people are turning and returning To the Lord in the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, in this language of spirit and power of Elijah, Elijah had a multi pronged ministry. If you read in the Old Testament about the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, because Elisha's around there too, he has a unique kind of power as well. He wanted a double portion of Elijah's blessing, he wanted more. which is a great thing to ask beyond just lunchtime. I want more of what God has done for you, Elijah. I want double that if I can have it. So what do we see in this language of the spirit and power of Elijah? Well, Elijah's ministry was both one of prophetic uh, confrontation, words of repentance, declaration about God and people's disobedience. He had a prophetic function in his ministry, and he had a miraculous function in his ministry. The ministries of Elijah and Elisha parallel some of the ministry of Jesus. Like when you're reading Elijah and Elisha narrative, you kind of go, this sounds like it could be plopped right into the Gospels, like in regard to the power with which we are seeing people be healed or restored John, we don't have any evidence of John having a ministry that is uh, supernaturally miraculous. We have a ministry of John that is confrontational and repentant. So, in the spirit and power of Elijah, seems to be it's going to have that type of repentant effect, restorative effect, prophetic effect that Elijah's ministry for the nation had. And this goes back to Malachi. Malachi. The prophet Malachi, where there are thematic links between what God is doing in salvation in the ministry of Elijah. Malachi 4 verse 5 reads like this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, it doesn't seem like this is the exact same link. I will send you, but there certainly is a thematic link in the ministry of John the Baptist. Elijah shows up even in the ministry of Jesus at the Transfiguration, doesn't he? Elijah and Moses are there. And so Elijah's day's not done. It's not just John the Baptist, spirit and power, Sia. See Elijah seems to still have ministry to do. And look at this language, though. Again, thematically, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. There is this power in the ministry of John the Baptist that is the same kind of power that the ministry of Elijah had that spoke about God and the need to turn to him and to trust him and to follow him and to... Ensure that you are repentant and pursuing God in the ways in which you ought. We need those people. We don't all need to be those people. That would get a little exhausting. But God does prepare the right people at the right time and in the right way to speak a message of repentance, of need, of turning, and of trusting. And there is a Moment in Israel's history with Zechariah in a room speaking with an angel, where this angel says, You will have a son, he will be called God is gracious, and he's going to do a great and powerful work in the spirit and power of Elijah. The John the Baptist and Elijah links are many. I don't know how many sermons it would take to get through that. They are many. The angelic encounter here is about the kind of ministry Elijah had. Luke is not saying in this, he is Elijah. But his ministry is like Elijah's uniquely in the prophetic confrontational turn to the Lord fashion. My favorite story about Elijah is when he confronts the prophets of Baal on the mountain. And they try to set an altar. The prophets of Baal try to set an altar. And Call down your God and do whatever you need. And they can't. They're cutting themselves. They're trying to tell their false gods how serious they are about the need to see these logs turn aflame. And then it becomes Elijah's turn. And Elijah goes, go ahead and get them wet. Douse them. Get them soaked. And then all he does is he prays. And he asked God to demonstrate his power. And God shows up so powerfully that not just the logs are burned, but the dirt is burned. Through prayer, spirit and power of Elijah, John the Baptist had no concern about the power of God for salvation. He had no concern about calling people to repent. He had no concern about the reputation that he might have. In fact, if you know the story of John the Baptist, he literally loses his head because of his seriousness for the Lord. That's not exactly in the birth announcement. But his zeal is to the end. And his commitment is to the end. His faithfulness is to the end. And so he is showing and declaring all that will go on in this man's ministry, this child's ministry, and you have to realize what's going on in the timeline, we're years away from that being realized. Years away from that being re- There still has to be a conception. There still has to be a birth. There still has to be a child that is reared and trained. All of that still has to go on. But at this moment, at the altar... At Zechariah's time of service, God is preparing Zechariah for what's to come. Now, we've seen this all throughout our preaching, all throughout the years we've done it. Before me, when Patrick was preaching or Roosevelt was preaching or anybody else, you will find a theme that when God shows up, people doubt. It's just a constant theme in Scripture where God's like, hey, here's what we're going to do. And everyone's like, ugh sure that that's how it's going to go? Like, like, doesn't matter how it's spoken, when it's spoken, why it's spoken, where it's spoken. There is this doubt that creeps into God's people as righteous and upright as Zechariah and Elizabeth were. And so Zechariah, of course, is impressed, but he doubts. This has happened from the beginning. So now we're going to pull back the curtain on who this angel of the Lord is. To realize just how serious this declaration is. How important this birth announcement is. So verse 18. God shows his power here through Gabriel. The angel. And Zechariah would know who Gabriel is. Zechariah said to the angel. Well how shall I know this for I'm an old man. And my wife is advanced in years. This sounds like Abraham. It's, just, it's the same kind of fear. How am I going to know this is going to happen? I'm old. She's old. We're old. Old people don't have kids. Now look at how there is a response. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. Like from Daniel. Like, like I am Gabriel. Okay? I like we're going old here. You think you're old? I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Because God's messengers never speak their own message. Angels, the idea behind angel is messenger, messenger, messenger. They don't create the message, they deliver the message. We are sent ones. We don't create the message of the gospel, we declare it, we speak it. I was sent because God is always seeking and saving and sending God. And so, so... it's like, you know, Gabriel reaches into his angelic pocket somehow. Now I'm being, you know, I don't know if they have angelic pockets. It's just a little creative license here. And he pulls it out and goes, look at my angel license. I've already, I was written about before you were even alive, Zechariah. I have ministered before the Lord and been a part of what he is doing in this world long before you were in existence. And you hear again that there's this tiny rebuke. You should take God at His word. You should take God at His word and not always be asking for, yeah, but how will I, how will I, how will I? I think an angel showing up at the altar of incense declaring what God is going to do, that should be enough. We saw this in the Gideon narrative. Angel shows up. You will have a battle. You will have victory. How, how will I know that there will be a victory? Prove it to me, angel. Prove it to me. And so he pulls out his calling card. Not all the angels declare their name. Sometimes they're just an angel of the Lord. But here we get a name. And that name has some significant history in the history of the nation. And so he, he puts a bit of a I don't know what word to use. Uh, Punishment. It's really a demonstration of God's power. It's really what it is. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that those things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So we have this little bit of an interaction on how will I know. And the answer is always the same answer, isn't it? You'll know because God is faithful. You'll know because God's word is true. You'll know because God's promises are sure. That's how you'll know. One of the hardest things for you and for me to do as believers at times is to take God at his word. When he says what he says, to trust it and to pray it and to act on it because God spoke and he is faithful so much of our lives as disciples and disciple makers and people being discipled is to believe the things that God has revealed to not have to seek out new thoughts new revelations new interpretations new stories new ideas but to root ourselves in what has been spoken And to trust that God will show up in the places that he has declared he will show up. And to trust that the promises that God gives are the promises that God gives. And when the world is telling me something about who I am, I can reject it. Because what God has spoken about me is more true and more sure than anything anybody else can throw my way. And yet, time and time again... We do the same kind of thing that Zechariah did. We just go, how do I know this is true? And it's really, you know it's true because God is faithful. His character is sure. He's not a liar. He's always worked it out. His plan has always come to pass. And so there's now an identifying sign put on Zechariah of the inability to speak until the child is born. And there will immediately be witnesses to his inability to speak. Verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them. And he remained mute. Now, if they had charade at this point in time, maybe it could have gone better for them. Or it's like one word, first word, right? Like angel. I don't know what they would have done. But he's trying to demonstrate what would happen. What had just gone on. And everybody sees it and goes, something powerful happened here. And then, just just as quickly as it started. This is one week of a man's life. As quickly as it started. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. It came about. Verse 8, Luke chapter 1, verse 8, now while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, all of this happened. And then you get to verse 23, and when his time of service was done, because he still had work to do, he just now did it as a man who couldn't speak, and when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And he went to his wife. I don't know what kind of look in his eye he had, but God had done something And you look at verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. The idea of why Elizabeth would keep herself hidden It's not totally known. Why would she keep herself? There's nothing to hide. I mean, I don't know many people who when they realize they're pregnant, they want to get pregnant, hide it for five months. But it was a part of her going away and getting away and being by herself. But in that, it also included this statement of God's faithfulness. The Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, which is an Old Testament way of talking about receiving his favor. You heard Johnny read it. May his face shine upon you. May his face give you peace. Because when the Lord looks upon people, it is a sign of his blessing. Very often a sign of his favor. So the Lord has looked upon me to take away my reproach from among the people. And so we see that God fulfills the first part of the promise. We haven't seen how John the Baptist will minister. We haven't seen what will go on as he grows up. We haven't seen, as you know, we get brought into the gospel of John, we start with kind of John the Baptist right away. There was a man who came from God. His name was John. Like, like it's like right up in there in chapter 1. But Luke is going backwards in the chronology for us. Luke's main concern in both Luke and Acts is to see God's promises fulfilled and the move of the gospel through the Messiah Jesus as it turns from Jew to Gentile. And the, and the transition that you begin to see of the fulfillment of the messianic promises of the Messiah and how that then pushes forth into all the world. Luke was even in parts of the book of Acts. He wrote both. And so there's these times in in Acts where he speaks first person plural. He just showed up. And then we did this and we did that and we did this and we did that. So there's this kind of, there's just third person storytelling and there's first person plural storytelling in the book of Acts. And Luke is trying to research and understand all that has gone on. And he wants to show, even earlier than just plopping the Lord down into the ministry like John did is to show all of the ways God is moving toward salvation in both large and in small ways. That's in fact what I want us to see here just theologically in the idea of preparation for the Messiah. The Messiah has come, but what we see is this consistent aspect of God's character, which is that God prepares people... For his path of salvation, what he is doing for salvation, in both large and small ways. as we said right there at the beginning, that's one of the most beautiful things about the Lord is that, is that we are not pawns. We are not pawns in the story, just disposable people. He goes, "Oh yeah, I could have, whatever." Like, like he is entering in personally, and he's using people with names. And stories and histories. He is redeeming at the same time that he is redeeming a story about infertility and barrenness for a family. He is using that as a part of his plan to bring salvation to the earth through the Son. And both of those things are going on at the same time. Unique answers. Zechariah, the Lord has heard your prayers. You're going to have a child. Not only are you going to have a child, because just in keeping with the Lord, he has more, more plans for that child than Zechariah and Elizabeth have. He wants more and will give more for that child, John the Baptist. God is always working, as we see here in Luke 1, 5 through 25. God is always working in the right time and in the right place. I bet there are people even in this room who have tension or frustration or anger or angst or fill in the blank because something has not happened in your life as you thought it should happen. It hasn't come about in the way that you think it should have come about, it hasn't been executed, a prayer hasn't been answered, you wonder why a certain thing is going on, you wonder why you're not working in the job you thought you would work on, you wonder why you don't have the size of the family you thought that you would have, all of those things that go on and stir in our minds and our hearts, they stir in the minds and the hearts of upright, righteous, law-abiding people like Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were praying for a child and had not at that point in time had that prayer answered. They're pursuing the Lord faithfully while still praying that God would bring them the blessing of children. God is concerned at a micro level about your heart and your life. But different than that, it's like these aren't just two parallel streams. His concern for his plan, his glory, and his salvation is so great that he is entering in in the most personal of ways to engage with a family and a righteous man who will become a righteous father to prepare the way for the Son, Jesus, the Messiah. God is both concerned about you, and his concerns are bigger than you. He's concerned about me, and his concerns are bigger than me, because it's salvation on the line. Everything happens, happens in just the right way, at just the right time with just the right people, at just the right time of service, just the right time the lot fell. You love some of that language that you'll see at times in the scriptures of, and it just so happened that, it's a common kind of scriptural, yeah, it just so happened that, and you see that in Luke. And just as Luke, you know, or, uh, we have Zechariah on his week of service, the dude had two weeks that year. So there were 46 plus other weeks of the year. The odds are not in his favor if we are a happenstance kind of people. But we're not. The chances of God showing up at the right place, at the right time, in the right way are always 100%. And God demonstrates his faithfulness even when Zechariah didn't have a clue that that was the time and that was the way up until and it maybe even seems just a little hair after before he could no longer speak he was still a little stunned about what was going on to the point that he had to ask how will i know i'm old she's old we're old how is this actually going to happen and with the response do you know the lord been sent by the Lord. It's very hard at times for me to think about even. I'll I'll use one that can be selfish or feels casual, but it's not interruptions. Some of you love to be interrupted. I I think in part it's it's. I have my own thoughts on why. I won't even say it. You love it. You disruptions are like a gift to you. You go. This is great. Yeah yeah. Other people don't love interruptions. They are hindrances, and um, they are interruptions to whatever God was supposed to have me doing. But then someone else came along and sat down. I don't think either are the case. I am not so arrogant that I think what I have planned for that day is the right thing all the time. Nor is every interruption necessarily this perfect interruption, but if we start to realize that God is moving and working even in small things to bring about his purposes and his ways, that he cares that much about our prayers and our heart, and above that, his glory, I mean, that's, the, that's, that's what we get to be a part of, a people who participate in life with a personal, caring, sovereign And good God who cares so much about his plan and his people that he will interrupt them and speak to them and declare promises to them. And what we think is changing the trajectory of the world is just for him a Wednesday afternoon. Because this is always what he does, and this is always how he moves. Christians should be the most content, trusting, joyful people because we have just seen in his word and in our lives and in one another's lives the constant, caring, faithful presence of God. Recognizing What he has always been doing. I would encourage you to take a little time, observationally, both of this passage and to look at all of the things that seem to be random, just how it was supposed to go. Take some time this week and look at this passage. And how God stepped in to normal routines of a priestly man's life to demonstrate his power. That's the first thing I would love for you to do this week. Even if you just take five minutes as a family and go, let's just look at that. Let's just look at what God is doing here to orchestrate and to bring about. That he didn't have to do, but he did and he used. Secondly... I would like for you to inventory even your own life and heart and go, where has God put me and placed me and how has he prepared me for certain conversations, for certain interactions, for certain demonstrations of his grace and his kindness to others to point them to his truth and to point them to his salvation. Because I would venture, if we see God as both this sovereign and this personal, That your Monday morning isn't a mistake. That what is before you even tomorrow, even at lunch, or even after is not a mistake. Now, in my flesh, one of the most frustrating things I can sometimes feel is like, I know that this life should be about others, but I want to make it about me right now. But if you just take a moment and go, who has God put around me? Where do I live? What job do I have? What friends do I interact with? Who do my children know? If we really believe that God is sovereign and personal, then we recognize what he is weaving together. The right time, in the right place, the right person to bring about his plans. Not mine, not yours, not ours, but his and the glorious salvation that God will continue to reveal through Luke and into Acts and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the life to the ends of the earth, all of that. He could have entered in. Luke could have entered in at any time, and he enters in with Zechariah, that God prepares the world for the Messiah by preparing a man to be a dad. And it's beautiful to see how he is this big and still sends Gabriel right to Zechariah to go, God's going to do it. He's going to move. You can trust him. That's our God. He is the same God that sent Gabriel to Zechariah the same God that sent the person who shared the gospel with you to you. Because God is always sending, He's always moving, He's always declaring, and He's always saving. We can step into that and we can trust it. Can